Hey, folks, I'm Tom. I'm Keith. And we're here to talk to you about uh, one of the fine sponsors of Front Row Knowles, and that is the Dunlap Champions Club. They've been with us for the last couple of years. Uh, many of you may have sampled it for the first time during the spring game. Uh, if so, the news was good. They had the biggest crowd they've ever had in there, and uh, from the stories I heard, things went well. Feedback was uh, off the charts in terms of the uh, – it was a great day to be outside, a great day to be inside, all the food, all the drink, all the uh, t- uh, televisions. You, you couldn't miss the action because of all the glass. I mean, there were a number of people – that spent their first game at Doak Campbell Stadium at the Champions Club during that spring game, and uh, they'll be back, and you need to join them. 644-1830 is how you can get some more information or tickets. Uh, you can buy season tickets. Obviously, a great home schedule this year. They've also got three-game packs this year, so you can uh, truly sample it uh, before you make the, the the five-year commitment, I guess, to buy the, buy the season tickets. But it, it's worth checking out. Uh, there's a lot of excitement about Florida State football for obvious reasons, and this is one of them very much so and remember with your champions club seats you get opportunity to be in the club on friday come back on sunday uh, you can make it a weekend visit to the weekend destination you'll enjoy it what he said now here's front row Knowles. broadcasting live from the prime meridian bank studios in the capital city of tallahassee this is front row Knowles with tom block and keith jones front row Knowles is brought to you by cornerstone tool and fastener online at ctf.nu now here's tom and keith Good evening, everyone, and hello. This is Keith Jones, and you are listening to Front Row Knowles. My partner, Tom Block, is joining us via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline. Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. Tommy, you're out and about, and we've got some stories and things to talk about. How are you doing? I am doing terrific, even though we have reached the end of the Florida State sports season until, really, until Labor Day night, although we'll count when football practice starts in August. I read a, a story, I heard something, maybe I dreamt it, I'm not sure, but, but, and we'll talk to our uh, Seminole insider, Tim Lenefelt, in the next segment a little more closely, but we may, we may just have snuck into that top 10 of the Director's Cup on overall athletic performance with what's been going on lately. As we speak, Florida State is 10th in the Director's Cup, but that has not yet factored in men's and women's track and field or baseball. Right. And Florida State finished 11th on the men's side and track field 14th on the women's side and obviously got to the regionals but didn't advance beyond that in baseball. So I have not uh, pulled out the uh, the calculator and actually, and I don't even know the numbers used to compute it, but in eyeballing it, it looks to me like uh, maybe Florida State can get to 8th or ninth. But, you know, it kind of depends on whatever as well and that's where i didn't bother to do math you didn't get that abacus out or that old texas Texas instrument calculator i I did not you know the 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 interesting thing there i mean florida state has been good comprehensively in in athletics for a long time Uh, although getting back into the top 10 i think it'll be the first time in a few years but really if you look at it the two sports that i think most would say are the biggest sports in florida state football and baseball now, basketball might weigh in, but I think generally when you look at the culture, it's been football and baseball. Those are two of the sports that did not have uh, good years by their standards, but just about everybody else did, in- including basketball with an Elite Eight finish on the men's side and a Sweet 16 finish on the women's side. Without question, without question. Well, let's talk about something a little more topical. The reason that um, you're making me drive the uh, SS uh, Front Row Knowles today and the reason that you're out is you have been traveling with one um, – Coach Taggart, and uh, you've been at the last couple of the uh, Seminole Spring Tour stops. So give us an update on what's going out, uh, going on elsewhere and outside of Tallahassee. Well, the Spring Tour has long been a staple since Bobby Bowden with Seminole Boosters. And uh, they go out, and I think there's 15 stops this year to rally support. And Gene, obviously, uh, you know, does, does most of them, but uh, Mr. Deckerhoff's on vacation. So... They went to the bench and uh, got a pinch hitter, and I was happy to uh, to hear my name announced in that role. But anyway, the last two nights, we were in Sarasota on Monday, and yesterday we were in Atlanta, and a series of events in both cases. And, you know, it's not anything that Tallahassians or wherever you may be listening, if you've talked to fellow Knowles, aren't experiencing. It's just that there's a real positive vibe. There's a lot of energy. The page has been turned. People are excited about Willie Taggart and just about everything that he talks about right now, whether it's playing music at practice, whether it's going up-tempo, whether it's punting less, 
whether it's accountability for the players in the classroom, whatever it is, people are excited about it. And, you know, this week it was interesting because the Sarasota stop, which really was Sarasota and Manatee County, that's his hometown. So right, it was right. a packed house. His mom, his family was in attendance. Uh, his high school coach, Joe Canan from Manatee High School, was in attendance. Peter Warwick was there, who, of course, played at uh, his rival high school at uh, Braden and Southeast. So, I mean, that was a, a big-time atmosphere, big-time event. And then in Atlanta last night, um, obviously it wasn't his hometown, but Peter Warwick actually lives in the Atlanta area now. So he was there at the event last night, along with Dexter Jackson, who's a Super Bowl MVP, Sterling Palmer, several former Knowles. But, but really the rock star outside of them and Taggart was that Lonnie Alameda was on the trip last night. And so, you know, the softball team in Florida State just continues to bask in the glow of that national title. And, and, and there's just a genuine appreciation for, uh, for Lonnie and her team and how they played the game in, in Oklahoma City. So, I, I mean, all in all, really, really good time the last two nights and a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around Florida State athletics right now. Well, see, I would beg to differ because in light of things that have been going on in the last week or so, uh, one Tom Block, I thought, would have been the superstar. I mean, who else has his picture in the Democrat with one Charlie Ward and then uh, MCs the national championship celebration uh, for the uh, softball team and then then pinch hits uh, on a couple of trips for the voice of the nose, uh, Knowles Gene Deckroff, I, I think you're being a little modest there, TB. Well, I appreciate it, Keith. It's been a good week, but you know, Florida State's got a lot to celebrate. I'm happy to be a part of it. And uh, you know, the thing with Charlie Ward, uh, that was sort of outside the uh, the FSU circles, if you will. But uh, he was speaking to a group last week, the Davis the Productivity Awards. I believe. Yeah, now the now the Prudential Productivity Awards. Yep. And uh, I, you know, I, I think one of the things to me, and you can appreciate this because we've been around it a while is when you watch the guys uh, or or ladies mature over the years. I mean, Charlie Ward was such a quiet guy, as we all know. I mean, didn't say boo in the huddle. And, uh, you know, he gave a really good talk last week. I mean, and now granted, I mean, he was a professional for a lot of years. He's been a coach for a lot of years. But, you know, he's even got gray hair now. But, I mean, he's come so far in, in that uh, arena. And Peter Wark is another one. You know, Peter... Obviously, there was some off-field stuff his his final year, but then on the field, he was tremendous. I mean, nobody's ever going to forget what he did against Virginia Tech at the Sugar Bowl. But he was sort of a guy that was maybe a little quiet, a little shy, or intimidated uh, around the media, or around adults, if you will. And and he grows up and matures, and uh, you know, is really personable. And you know, he's coaching. Uh, he's not a head coach, but he's coaching in the Atlanta area now. So. I, there's a lot. We remember them for the four or five years they wore the, the football pads and uniform. But I mean, their their lives go on, and it's, it's fun to see how they grow and develop and mature over the years. Well, man, uh, I sound I sound like an old guy saying that. I, I thought I was listening to myself. I thought you were supposed to play the younger version uh, here on Front Row Knowles. You're 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 taking my spot here, dude. I know I'm I'm taking your spot, but it's true though. I mean, and I think you know that's one of the things with Willie Taggart that uh, he really has emphasized to me is and and he said it to the crowd in both the the stops this week is you know we see these we see these guys for the 3 4 5 years there at Florida State but that experience changes their lives and it can change their families lives and it, it can be a generational change a lot of these guys they're they're the first in their families to go to college uh, and so you get a college degree it's changing a lot of things for them just the experiences on and off the field that they have at FSU so that's that's part of the message from coach Taggart and it's an exciting time. Now, you know, uh, come August, September, October, November, that schedule's pretty challenging, and there'll have to be some wins there. But but I do think for good reason there, there's a lot to be excited about. What uh, what happened in Atlanta maybe that you hadn't seen before or was a little unusual? I've been up there a couple of times. That group is very, very large, and, and they're very diverse. And usually anytime they get together, uh, you, you see something you haven't seen for the first time or hear something for the first time. Was that the case uh, again this week? Um, there was a great turnout in both. I mean, I think there was over 500 people in Sarasota and, and in Atlanta uh, last night. I don't know if there was anything new. Uh, I think it just continues to be a reconnection, which we saw at the spring game with, with Coach Bowden coming back and 300 former players coming back. And, you know, then you go to an event like that and, and there's six or eight or ten former Seminole football players that are at the Atlanta Seminole Club event last night at the Booster Tour stop. So I know I'm, I'm repeating myself, but it's just enthusiasm and excitement uh, is where we are right now, and it's, and it's fun. I've heard the term rekindled or rekindling 
of that old Seminole spirit uh, talked about a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's right. And and so this is, you know, there's a portion of the program where uh, Coach Tagger takes questions from the audience. And this was actually uh, in Sarasota the other night. Uh, a little boy, he was probably six or seven. He raised his hand and Coach calls on him. And the, and the question was, Coach, are you ready to, to win more games than Jimbo Fisher? And and Coach Tagger doesn't miss a beat. And he looks at the group and he says, I'm ready to win more games than Bobby Bowden. And so, obviously, that brings down the house. Now, that's a that's a pretty bold statement. It's the kind of thing you say and you play to the crowd there. But, I mean, it, it was really well-received. I think he later did the math and figured out there's no way he wants to try to compete with that. But, um, you know, he's just he's just good in that environment and, uh, you know, excited about the opportunity he has, appreciative of it, but, uh, you know, ready to hashtag do something, which is his catchphrase, if you will. Yep. Um, um, one last thing before we uh, take a break here. I, I want to go back to, to Coach Lonnie and uh, and how she was received. I mean, you know, you and I have talked about, and specifically last week, you know, a lot of folks don't know that FSU has has the equivalent or, or actual two national championships prior to this year in slow pitch softball on the women's side. That was that was what was played uh, in the southeast, and we talked a little bit about that and how the West had dominated that. And for FSU's women to to come along as they've had and, and to to sweep um, that two game series in the final, I really think has elevated Coach Lonnie in, in this program in a way that is is equivalent to how quickly Coach Bowden brought the football team back on the map in the early 70s. Maybe not as many people, but certainly the recognition of something that uh, is truly transformative for that program. Yeah, it was really transforming. I think part of there's a lot of reasons for it. One was how much fun they have, which we've talked about when they play. But the other thing is that, you know, unlike football where you play one game and then it's seven days to you play another, the softball team was in prime time every night in a do-or-die situation for five nights in a row or whatever it was. And so it became must-see appointment TV for a series of nights. And I think they really, not just the Florida State folks, the sort of the nation, everybody but Washington fans got behind Florida State. And so it was just cool to see. And obviously, you know, it hadn't been talked about as much, but uh, just as on the baseball side, the softball team had had the, uh, the unfortunate uh, badge, if you will, that they had been to the World Series more times than anybody without winning the title. So Florida State actually had that on both sides both diamonds, if you will, both softball and baseball. So to get that one off the back, at least on one side, and to do it really in impressive fashion, we talked a little bit about this. That was not, there was nothing lucky about that run. It wasn't like a little bleeder dropped in or somebody threw a ball away and Florida State happened to stay alive. I mean, they played, uh, you know, in a lose-and-go-home situation, and they just took it to their opponent every game out there, and then the two in a row in the title game. It was just really, really impressive. And you know, softball games are free to attend at FSU until they get to the postseason. They already get a great crowd. I would expect that that's only going to improve in future years uh, with good reason because most of the team is back for next year, and it's a fun program. Yeah, and yeah. as a side as a side note, Keith, this is a bigger picture thing, and I don't know if we have time to get into it. Now. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, related to, to to baseball, you know, a, a, a pure baseball fan probably hasn't been interested in in fast pitch softball. Uh, historically, but now that they've seen it a little bit more and they realize that this is not just a bunt and slap game, that uh, these girls can hit, uh, it's a faster-paced game. I-, I think there's something to the fact that in today's day and age, uh, you know, college baseball game, we had one in the regionals between Mississippi State and Oklahoma that was a nine-inning game that took nearly five hours. I mean, you can play three softball games in that stretch. Right, right. And, and you know, and, and even at the major league level, baseball has been looking at rules. How can we speed up the game? And at the college level, I, I really, and coaches won't want to do this, I think they got to put a mercy rule in on the college baseball side in the postseason, the same way you have it in college softball. Now, in the, in the championship round, I don't think the mercy rule applied, which is if you're up eight after five innings, the game's over. But I think in baseball, in the regionals, you got to look at doing that for seven innings and getting there. The reason coaches would be against it is because if you're in the winner's bracket, you want the other teams to have to continue to use pitchers to give you an edge. But I, I think it's something that's going to have to be discussed just for the name of the game because I, who's got four and a half hours to invest in a college baseball game uh, in, in today's day and age? I mean, yeah. it, it's an issue. I agree and, with uh, you. I agree with you. And you're looking, we, in, uh, looking and listening to a guy who did the Ohio State-FSU game, which was 36 to something. 
with one Gene Deckerhoff, and that's the longest experience I've spent in the press box in my lifetime. Uh, it, right, yeah. yeah it was 37 <laughs> It was thirty-seven nothing, and you couldn't end the game early. And yeah. the game I'm referring to in the regional that was just played at FSU was the first game. It was 20-10 20 to 20 10 Oklahoma. To 10. Yeah. And it took, I think the game time was like four hours and 35 or 40 minutes. There was no reason to play the eighth and ninth inning there. You could have shaved an hour and, and gone on with business. So, uh, you know, I think those conversations are, are going to have to be had if they're not already behind closed doors because the, the bigger picture with college baseball to me is that the coaches micromanage so much that it slows the game down even more than, than what you see at the major league level. And, you know, that's going to continue unless you legislate against it. And, you know, that's why the NCAA rulebook gets so thick. But it, but I think it may be something that needs to be talked about to shorten the games a little bit. Well, we need to go and uh, go to a break. But I will tell you the one example of the difference between the two games is that in in softball, you can be called – it's not called a balk. It's just called a ball if you pitch too fast. Right. <laughs> I think that explains all that we need to well, know. Well, you know, that's a good point, Keith. I mean, in softball, you see them getting flagged for throwing for pitching too fast, and in baseball, we've got a pitch clock because they're pitching too slow. They're taking too long between pitches. You know that that, in a nutshell, really succinctly sums up the difference between the two right now. That coming from our own Tom Block. All right, Tommy, I'll tell our listeners more than they need to know. You've got to hang up because you've got to do a double dial and get Lynn, uh, Tim on the phone. So we're going to cut you loose. And I would remind our listeners that uh, Madison Social has been a wonderful sponsor of Front Row Knowles since our inception. They have happy hour Monday through Friday from 4 to 7, brunch on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday from 10 to 4. And though it's not necessarily in play right now, put it in the back pocket. Remember, they've got the Tribe program going on for a $10 membership uh, uh, investment. Uh, that will buy you a free drink during select FSU home and televised away men's and women's sporting events for a year. So a 10 buck investment, free first drink uh, when you're witnessing things at Madison Social. We're going to step aside. We'll be rejoined by Tom and our Seminole Insider, Tim Linnefelt, right after these messages. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Well, the band is back. Keith Jones with you here on Front Row Knowles. I'm joined via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together with not one but two of my colleagues, Tom Block and Tim Linnefelt. Guys, how are we doing, Tim? Welcome back. Doing great, Keith. How are you? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were asking. No, I'm, I'm welcoming you back. You uh, oh, you were a, a superstar last week, and we couldn't get a hold of you because of your travel plans, but uh, it's good to have you back with us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, and I, and I apologize for that. You know what? Sometimes we're just at the mercy of uh, of the airlines and their schedules and the weather and, and whatever else. We do the best we can, though, you know? Well, we'll give you a uh, uh, first crack. Uh, Tom and I obviously talked about it, and uh, uh, Aria came on, uh, who was actually out there uh, with the ladies when they captured their national championship. You were there uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, we'll give you the floor real quick just for a little recap the Tim Linnefelt way. Well, you know, I just thought it was a really cool and, and unique scene. Um, you know, what what kind of occurred to me uh, maybe midway through the second game there on Tuesday night was that Florida State was a better team. I mean, they were better than Washington. I think mean, if you take away that they had about one bad inning in that first game against UCLA that set them back and they ended up losing that game. But aside from that, I mean, they dominated just about everybody, played really, really well, uh, pitched obviously fantastic, hit really, really well. Uh, just a, an all-around, uh, just really great performance. You know, the idea of peaking at the right time, I think they did that. And, uh, and to see just the way they kind of came together and rallied around each other and rallied, rallied around Lonnie Alameda, I think, you know, you really can't overstate how much everything really just runs through her. Uh, to see all that rewarded was, was uh, pretty cool and, and, like I said, a unique experience, something that uh, you know, we haven't seen, we've certainly never seen a, an NCAA softball championship before to say, but just to see, you know, that group, uh, that team, uh, the way they did it, it was uh, it was really neat. And we'll remind our, our listeners that they should visit Seminoles.com. You guys have got some great photo galleries, some videos, and I'm sure they'll stay up for a while and people will have an opportunity oh, yeah. to, to look. 
All right. Well, we uh, mentioned in our first segment that Tom is pinch hitting for Gene Deckerhoff and um, on, on the Seminole uh, Spring Tour. You were present uh, as well. Uh, so uh, I want to get both of you guys pr- continued perspective on, uh, you know, what's going on outside of Tallahassee when it comes to uh, Florida State football program and one coach, Willie Taggart. I'll let you take it, Tim, because I already opined in the first segment. <laughs> okay, sure, yeah. Well, I was there uh, in Sarasota, and I also went to Tampa a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and look, you know, I don't, I don't have too, too much perspective about the way things were before. I've, I've been to a couple of the local clubs, but I had never gone on the road for a, a, a booster tour event. But, uh, but what I can tell you from, from my observations is uh, it's just, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of excitement. Um, you just, I don't know. You walk around the room. I don't know, Tom, if you felt this way. We were walking around that theater the other night. I mean, there's just like a buzz. You know, it's like you're getting ready to see, I don't know, like Led Zeppelin or something, uh, you know, the, the, the time before they go on stage. Uh, it's just really, really cool. Um, and then and the other thing is just that Willie Taggers is really, really good at this. Um, you know, he, he, he has great stories, great anecdotes, uh, obviously has a reverence for Florida State football and the program uh, and the history of it. And, uh, and I think that really resonates with, uh, with the fan base and with, uh, with the booster base. And it's just, uh, like I said, I mean, it's just like a buzz. I don't know how else to describe it. There's a certain energy at these things that, uh, I mean, maybe it's that way at other schools, other programs. I don't know. But you can definitely feel it uh, when Willie Taggart's in the house. Tom, I think uh, he's, Coach Taggart. Go ahead. Go I, ahead. I think, you know, we've talked about his reverence of, of Florida State history and throwing it back to the 90s at the spring game. If you stop and think about that, you know, you're, he's talking to a, a large number of folks who grew up on the dynasty years at some point that came through school or became an FSU fan between 87 and 2000. So at this point, you know, we're 20 to 30 years removed from that time period. But when you when you talk about those days, it makes you feel good about how good Florida State was. And that's a lot of what he does is talk about respect for Coach Bowden and, you know, his favorite memory because he was asked this in Atlanta was, you know, if he had to pin it down to one, it was Charlie Ward winning the national title with Florida State in 93. So you start talking about those memories and, and these Florida State faithful that, uh, you know, are now in their 40s or into their 50s they immediately reconnect with those days when Florida, you know, Florida State went the whole decade of the 90s and didn't lose the game at home, you know. So that that gets back fresh in your mind, and it just it, it, it creates or it, it adds to that buzz uh, that, that Tim's talking about. Apologize for, for talking over you because I wanted to get to my a point about that, about the reconnection and, and, and Coach Taggart being one of us. Uh, unlike in years past, Willie actually plays golf. I mean, you, you know he's out there – you know, trying to chase that little white ball around somewhere. He golfed yesterday, and I think there's more golf on tap next week at the tour stops. But, yeah, he does. He's, he's embraced this, the spring tour, whether it's uh, talking to the crowd uh, in mass, whether it's, it's talking to, uh, you know, specific individuals or sponsors uh, in a smaller setting, whether it's playing golf. I mean, it, it, it's been good. And, you know, in some respects, it's sort of like recruiting, only you're recruiting the fans and the supporters here instead of recruiting the players, but they're equally important to the ultimate success of the program. Well, I think it goes back to one of Coach Bowden's philosophies, which is that you're always required to sell the program. And uh, there have been times with other programs, there were times with Jimbo when, you know, doing those things were considered a nuisance because they didn't contribute to what he visioned as being his job uh, as the head coach, and I think in today's environment, with just the way things are, you know these these things like Coach Bowden started them. Uh, they're necessary to keep the fan base connected. Well, he has a good line. I'm sure Tim heard it. Uh, it's more related to recruiting than the the spring tour, but the same sentiment would apply. And that is, you know, recruiting is is like brushing your teeth and combing your hair. You know, when you stop doing it, you don't look so good. <laughs> so. I mean, you got to get out there and do it every day. Well, at least he's got some hair to f- to fiddle with. Some, <laughs> some of us have all fallen out. Talking about hands-on stuff, Tim, I know there was a uh, youth camp uh, a couple weeks ago and then a skills camp uh, on campus over the last few days uh, related to football. Uh, some commitments, um, which obviously we, we don't talk about here on this show, but folks that uh, got excited and folks that have committed and coming back for second and third visits, um, you know, what, what, what can you tell us in an overview way about uh, the skills camp and, and how it was different from years past? Uh, you know, I'd say it's, it's it's a tough one for me, obviously, because we can't get into specifics, and, and it's, it's tough for, for even me to cover just because of my role with the university. But uh, it's kind of my overarching takeaway, you know, from a big picture perspective and, and from our side of things, it's just kind of the the, the, the 
positive vibes and the uh, the overall atmosphere that's created. You know, certainly it starts at the top with Willie Taggart, but uh, but the the coaching staff that he's assembled. You know, uh, people like coming to Florida State, and I think they they obviously like what they're getting from uh, from this staff. It's I mean, extremely hands-on staff. I mean, these guys are everywhere. You know, you watch them out either at the camps or I remember watching out in spring. I mean, there's guys that they they don't stop. You know, like it's if they get out on the, the, the practice fields and they are moving, talking, coaching, teaching, whatever the case may be, then they don't stop moving. There's, there's no stoppage of the motion uh, for the entire time that they're out there. And then I think you can kind of feel that energy. I mean, it, it is, a, you know, a lot of the guys on staff, you know, it's the younger staff, and I think they kind of bring, uh, you know, that mentality to the, to the practice fields, whether it's for, uh, you know, practice with the, the Florida State football team or a camp with, uh, with, with some young kids or some high school age kids. Uh, they, they kind of bring that same mentality, and that's been pretty apparent over the last couple of weeks. Hey, Tim, one of the things, just going back to the tour real quick, I don't know how frequently he'll do this or how much it's been done in the past, but Coach Taggart brought DeMarcus Christmas to Sarasota. He, DeMarcus is from the same high school as Coach Taggart, and so he got a chance there. I know you got a chance to talk to DeMarcus. What What are your impressions on, on sort of his story as a fifth-year senior and a guy who's going to be a really key player for the defense this year? I thought that was a really cool thing, and you know, that was always sort of you, you, you brought up Coach Bowden. One of the things he was really good at when he went on those tours was he knew where he was and knew, you know, who if anybody on his roster was from that town or from that area, and he could kind of talk on them and brag on them a little bit and make you know their high school coaches and parents and whoever else might be in attendance feel pretty good about it and, and kind of create that connection uh, with the program. And uh, and and I think you know Coach Dagger took that to another level and then actually bringing to Marcus Christmas. I don't know. I can't remember if I've ever seen a player go with a coach on a on a on a tour stop like that, but I thought it was really cool. I mean, and Demarcus is a great ambassador uh, for the program, a fifth year senior defensive lineman. Um, you know, he's a he's a man of few words, but when he does speak, I think it, it carries a little bit more weight. And and I thought it was kind of neat. You know, it, it it obviously meant a lot to uh, to Demarcus too. I think you know he was probably a little bit nervous going out there and in, in front of a, you know a, a, on stage in a theater with six or seven hundred people in it. Uh, but I think when he did it, I think he sort of realized, hey, you know, this is a, a unique thing and and kind of a, a way for him to, uh, to to gain some more life experience too, and then stand up in front of some people who, uh, you know, who kind of helped get helped him get where he was. You know, coaches from his high school and people from his community, and, and you know, he's come out and said before that uh, when he's done with football, he wants to uh, to work with underprivileged kids and work with uh, you know different communities, and, and probably start with the one where he grew up, and uh, and getting out and doing stuff like that is a, not a bad place to uh, to start on that road. Tim, well said. Uh, we're going to cut you loose. Tommy, you have to stay on the line because I can't drive this ship by myself. We're going to hey, step I've aside. A, oh, I've got one more question for Tim, though, before we do it. Keith, you may not have even seen this, but the final coaches poll for softball came out yesterday. Oh, good grief. And and Florida State was not unanimous number one because somebody voted Washington and somebody voted Oregon number one. Your thoughts? I mean, I, I think you got them. I, I don't know. I mean, who is the panel on that poll? You know what I'm saying? Uh, the the, the uh, if you want to talk about SEC bias in college football, you know the Pac-12 has sort of been the the rulers of the roost in, in college softball for a long time. So my guess is there's some of the some of the coaches or staffers there that just aren't quite ready to let go. <laughs> Tommy, I wouldn't necessarily be happy with you interrupting me like you just did, but for that bit of tidbit, I'll I'll give you the kudos. That was a good call. Can I interrupt you again? If you must. I'm currently out of town. I'm in New Orleans uh, with my wife and family here this week uh, for the rest of the week. But I'm looking and thinking that I might have to get back early on Sunday for Father's Day because Madison Social has a free select beer for Dad. Township has a free war dad lager for Dad. And Centrale has a free pitcher of beer with any large pizza purchase. So that might have to be the plan on Sunday afternoon when we roll back in town. Another good call, Mr. Block. That's why you get to drive the ship most of the time, and I'm just the co-pilot. <laughs> Timmy, thank you. Tommy, hang on. Listeners, we'll be back in just a minute. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. All in all, it's just a brick in the wall. All in all, you're just a brick in the wall. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener. Online at ctf.nu. Here's Tom and Keith. Hey, 
Welcome back, everybody. Keith Jones with you here on Front Row Knowles. I'm joined by my partner, Tom Block, via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. All right, Tommy, since I get to be in charge, uh, we're going to take a little diversion, okay? I know it's not, it's not football season, but we got a couple of mini topics within the football genre that we need to address. The first is um, uh, highlight a couple of the rule changes that are coming up. And secondly, and, and kind of talked about just recently, uh, some expansion of bowl games. So we'll start there. Uh, a rumor, a thought, uh, some announcements coming that maybe uh, two or three additional bowl games will be added to the slate. Maybe not in, uh, in 19, but certainly as early as 2020. Yeah, I think 2020 is what they're targeting, and this may be official by the time folks hear this, as uh, we're recording a little bit early, but Chicago is one of them. Uh, it, it's, we'll have an ACC tie-in. It's going to be a Big Ten ACC game, and it'll be played at Wrigley Field, which is cool, except that it'll be cold, much like the Pinstripe Bowl. because it'll Or be, freezing. You know, yeah, it, I guess, I don't know the date as we're speaking, but it'll be sometime between December 20th and December 30th, I'm sure. Uh, and it really wouldn't matter because if you're between like Thanksgiving and uh, summer vacation, it's cold in Chicago. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think and another one is going to is going to head to Myrtle Beach. The Myrtle Beach one won't have an ACC tie-in. Uh, that's uh, it's lower cuts. That's not Power Five conferences. And I'm not sure where the third new bowl is. But really, so it's two things. One, from an ACC standpoint, the ACC is going to have as many bowl tie-ins as any conference. The ACC and the SEC will each have ten bowl tie-ins. And that's not counting your New Year's Six. So, I mean, it'd be tough to get just about everybody in, but I guess if you had two teams go to the New Year's Six and then had another 10 teams eligible, you could actually get 12 teams bowling in a year, which would be remarkable for either conference. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, beyond that, that's 43 bowl games, Keith. That's 86 teams out of 130 that would be going to uh, bowl games in 2020. And, and I don't have a problem with that. I've heard a bunch of the national folks uh bemoaning the fact that we'd be up to 43 so what you know everybody talks about that the bowl games don't matter because we now have the playoffs well it it matters for the four teams that are in the playoffs that we have the playoffs but for the other 126 teams the bowl games are important for a lot of different reasons first of all let's go back to the fact that these bowl games raise money for their local charities millions and millions and millions of dollars poured back into those local economies number two the money in the local economies not very many people go to shreveport three days before new year's if there's not a bowl game okay and we had a great trip granted it was it was shreveport but it was a great trip and florida state benefited with 15 more practices another game an opportunity for young players to get some time on the field what what's the problem what's the what's the negative of increasing these bowl games, and, and I don't buy into the fact that the playoffs take away from their, their their usefulness. Well, and what is a clear case of bad radio, Keith? I agree with you here. Uh, the, the reality on the bowl games is the worst bowl game, the ones on December 20th, 21st, whatever it is, it does a better TV number than the best college basketball games do. That's just the reality. So ESPN is going to spend the money, and they're going to continue to create more bowl games. And we're going to continue to watch them because it's football. If we had preseason college football games on August 15th, even though it didn't count, you know that we would watch them, even if it was Florida State versus Georgia Southern or whoever. Or if we had spring games in April or May, which was FSU versus Georgia. That's not for today's show. Um, (laughs) No, no, I agree with you. I don't think think there's a downside to it. People will complain about it. Some of the matchups, a lot of them won't be sexy because they're not going to be your – your blue bloods, you know, so it's going to be Southern Miss against Toledo. But you know what? You end up sitting there on your TV, uh, on your couch, watching it. For and some of those games, whatever. some of those games are unbelievably entertaining, even if they don't have national prominence. They're just they're fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And it's uh, you know, and ESPN has turned it into to Capital One Bowl Week or whoever the sponsor is now. Um, I, I'm with you. I don't I don't see a big downside. The the point. Related to, to this year in Florida State, Willie Taggart has talked about this a lot because he, you know, this is the fourth time he's taken over a program, but it's the first time that he's taken over a program that actually he got a chance to watch the team practice because they were in a bowl. So he got to watch Florida State at bowl practice. He got to watch the coaches coach and the players play to figure out, you know, are there coaches on the staff I want to retain? Uh, which players, 
you know, have more there than what's being utilized? How do they work? How do they practice? That's a big deal that he's talked about because he's never had that opportunity previously. And, you know, he's taken over programs, but it hasn't been until spring practice that he's gotten to see what the guys can do. So for Florida State in particular, it may have been the Independence Bowl and it may have, uh, you know, not been very sexy for Florida State fans. Obviously, you were 6-6 six and six at the time until you won the game. But it was a big deal. And it was a good trip. I'll repeat myself. All right. Last couple of minutes of this segment, some rule changes for 2019, uh, 2018 rather, 2018. Uh, the first one, uh, kind of a pet peeve of mine, uh, the, the the bicycle shorts in in college football will be gone away with, I guess. we got to cover the knees next year. Yeah, and that's been talked about for a while. I, I think even last year it was like a point of emphasis but wasn't called that this year it's required that the knee pads are on and the knees are covered. Is that going to change much, Keith? It's a pet peeve of yours. Well, it will make players unhappy. Coaches will make sure and equipment managers will make sure they're in compliance because you get pulled out of the game and you don't get to go back in until you are legal, declared legal. Uh, but the players won't like it. The other thing that was a part of that, Tommy, that I had uh, not known until you sent me some info uh, is that the stomach may no longer be exposed. Your, your jersey has to either be tucked or below the waistline. Your back plate, that back plate that goes over the small of your back, cannot be shown. It has to be completely covered. And thirdly, your T-shirt cannot extend below your jersey. And Florida State kids for the last couple of years have been unbelievably guilty of that, where that garnet uh, uh, T-shirt, uh, particularly when they're wearing white jerseys uh, on away games, would, would be six or eight inches below that waistline. Um, players aren't going to like it. It probably isn't going to be a big deal for the fans, but the players are not going to be happy with it until they get used to it, I would think. Well, I was going to say, and then they'll get used to it. James Wilder is the most recent one. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some, but he, he likes to uh, show the midriff, which if mine looked like his, I probably would too. Right? Well, you know, some people can have a six-pack, <laughs> and then there's folks like me that's got a keg. I, I know that's an old joke, but uh, that, that's funny the, nevertheless. The, the uh yeah, I mean, that one's not as big for the fans. The more interesting one is what we're doing on kickoffs. Now. Very what, much what's so. What's your thought on fair catching and getting the ball to 25? And, and again, to, to make sure our listeners are aware, on kickoffs, where, where coaches uh, have been deciding to not kick the ball through the end zone. Remember, the ball used to come out to the 20. Now it comes out to the 25 on touchbacks. This new rule says that if you fair catch the ball, which, by the way, that fair catch rule was changed 10 or 12 years ago when I played back in the Stone Ages, you could not even fair catch a kickoff. But now you can fair catch the kickoff, and prior to this year, you you fair catch the ball on the 10-yard line, it's placed at the 10-yard line. Now if you catch the ball via fair catch inside the 25, it will count just like a touchback, and the ball will be brought out to the 25, and that's where – the offense will begin uh, their their uh, drive. And so it eliminates uh, those coaches which have been working and instructing their kickers to try to drop that ball down between the 10 and the 5 or the 5 and the goal line and forcing teams to actually engage in a return. You can counteract that by using the fair catch and still getting the ball in the 25. Yeah, so I would say, and Jimbo was a big proponent of that because you know, it's part of that hidden field position. But if you're making the stop at 20, you're, you know, you're gaining five yards of field position compared to kicking into the end zone. But I would say this, that the downside of that is that occasionally your kicker would kick it out of bounds and then it comes out even further. So if you're kicking off now and your kicker's got the leg, why wouldn't you just kick it into the end zone right now every time and just take the ball, you know, give the team the ball to 25? And, I mean, and do you think – well, we'll we'll wrap with that because what the committee is saying is they don't want kickoff returns, right? Right, and, and that's just, the way to eliminate them. Yeah, I'm just saying. So if you're the team kicking, why would you roll the dice to try and you know cough and corner it when it may go out of bounds? First of all, um, or if if it doesn't, the guy can catch it and it's going to be at the 25 if he fair catches it. And if you're the return team. If, if all you have to do is raise your hand and make the catch and the ball's at the 25, why would you roll the dice that you're going to return it and get a holding or a block in the back or a fumble or not get to the 25? I mean, so I, I think it's going to work. I don't know why you wouldn't do it. That. I guess suppose if you caught the ball at the 20 because it was a short kick, maybe you wouldn't fair catch it and you'd run it because you think you can get to the 30. But other than that, I, well, a I couple do. a couple of things that come into play. Number one, if the opposing team has just scored and you're down by six or less – you're probably going to want to return the kickoff because there is a chance for a big play. So that would be one. Well, clock would be a factor in that too, I guess. Uh, uh, Yeah, and number two, 
you know, if you've got an excellent return man and, and you are counting upon him to, to get you some field position, you may still choose to do it, just like some teams would bring the ball out even what was in the end zone. So, I mean, there'll, there'll be some outliers, but the bottom line is it will decrease the number of kickoff returns. There's no question about that. Right, which is, you know, on the way to us eliminating kickoffs altogether from the game and, and an effort to reduce injuries or on kickoffs. Another story for another day. Uh, yeah, I guess we've pretty much beat I, I am curious to see how, you know, we could get to the Terrell Buckley situation. I know that was a punt. But, you know, basically you go four games and you fair catch every kickoff. And so the opponent has watched tape. They know you're never going to return one. And then lo and behold, you don't fair catch it. And everybody's kind of flat-footed and you try and spring one. Kind of like I fall, mean, falling down when you're a base runner at first base and you run into second and you fall down to try to get the boy in from third. However it works. I, I just, I, I don't, I mean, it, it's, to do this, it feels to me like you might as well just take away the kickoff which they don't want to do because then the onside kick goes out of the equation. Yep. You know? So yep. this is the, so they're in between right now trying to eliminate the contact, and, and, you're, and in so doing, you're going to eliminate a lot of big plays on kickoff, but, but the onside kick would still be in play. All right, when you or I are declared college football king, we'll fix it. How about that? I'm not sure when we're going to be declared kings, but uh, sounds like a plan. All right. All right. Well, we're going to step aside. we got one more segment coming up on this edition of Front Row Knowles. And stay with us. We'll be right back. Always cold. No sunshine. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back, everybody. Keith Jones with you here on Front Row Knowles on our fourth and final segment. Before we get started, we remind you that if you've got a do-it-yourself project that needs to be finished, go visit Ron and his knowledgeable staff at Cornerstone Tool and Fastener and get all of your power tool needs. Two locations to choose from, 1110 Stuckey Avenue and 3269 Crawfordville Highway. You can call them at 580-1200 or online at www ctf.nu and we are wearing out that earl bacon agency hotline because once again we go back to tom block who is away from us and here in segment four for the wrap-up and um tommy what do you want to talk about i'll let you go back and uh, drive this thing a little bit well one of the things that i'm just seeing that uh i think they've officially voted on is uh involving student athlete transfer rules to a to a new school and so let's um just reading this off the ncaa site beginning in october Student-athletes will have the ability to transfer to a different school and receive a scholarship without asking their current school for permission. So this should eliminate the list of 42 schools that a coach or a school won't let you transfer to when you want to transfer. Instead of asking for permission, you just tell them that you're planning to transfer. Now, it doesn't mean you you, you still have to sit out a year, but at least we're, we're making some progress and getting past the whole, well, you can't go to Citadel because we play them in four years and that kind of nonsense. And again, this is uh, everyone transfer, not just the graduate transfer. Right. Right. This is everyone. So again, the, the previous rule required student athletes to get permission from their current school to contact another school. Uh, this this sort of changes that dynamic. So now the student athlete can go in and say, Coach, I appreciate it, but I'm transferring and I'm going to go here. Well, that's the uh, first now, step. That's the first step. It is uh, obviously, first step. Uh, it is obviously, first step. there are those that think that sitting out the year – uh, should be done away with. You should be free to transfer without sitting out a year. Uh, I guess we'll address that in the months, uh, weeks, months, and years to come. Well, I, you know, they had a lot of talk about trying to put a attach a GPA to that. Uh, I.e., if you were, you know, had a three two, and I don't, I'm, I'm making up the numbers. I don't know what they were. Then maybe you could transfer and not sit out a year. And they didn't get very far down that road. I do think, though, as they continue these discussions, that the next step to me, rather than tying it to a GPA, it has to be more if your coach leaves. It, you know, if, you're, if your coach, if you signed up to play for Coach Smith and Coach Smith bolts, does that mean that you now have the right to open up your recruitment again? How do you assess that? Because, in, in, you know, you're getting a different experience than what you signed up for. Well, and I think there's three aspects to that. The first one and the one that needs to be addressed immediately is where you have committed or or have signed 
and, and a coach is released or leaves before you ever set foot on campus. Right. That's that's one set. The second set is where the head coach that recruited you leaves. You may be a sophomore, a junior, a redshirt junior, or whatever. And then the, down the pecking order, the third one would be if your segment coach leaves. Now, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be in favor of kids being able to transfer when a segment coach or an assistant coach takes another job. But certainly those first two, when it involves the head coach, uh, I think we need to have some more dialogue and we need to uh, approach that with what what can we do to give the kids some additional opportunities without without creating this entire problem of kids being able to leave whenever they want to, however they want to. Yeah, without anarchy or complete free agency, but especially in the era where the student athletes are not being paid, and I know they get the full cost of attendance, and whenever a coach, not whenever, but a lot of times when a coach moves on, it's because now he's got a $7 million contract somewhere else. Now, sometimes it's because the coach got fired, but it, it does need to be talked about further, and at least we're making some progress on it. I mean, a couple of years ago, we didn't have a full cost of attendance, and up right now, as we speak, we still have you know coaches whether it's Nick Saban or whoever, can veto whatever schools they choose that they don't want you to go to, but that'll go away starting in October. So that is a win for the student-athlete. I agree. I agree. Um, Let's go back to uh, baseball, uh, in particular Florida State. Uh, I know that there is uh, either a meeting taking place or a meeting has been announced between uh, Coach Mike Martin and uh, A.D. Wilcox. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, we're taping a little early t- uh, today. show's going to air a little earlier than normal and repeat. Uh, so there is the possibility that something um, gets talked about that we're not aware of by the time this actually hits the airways. But, uh, but give us a little backdrop and give us a little perspective on, on what you think those conversations uh, might might lead to or what direction it may go, or, or are we all just guessing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be pure speculation, really. I mean, I I had thought that this was going to be Mike Martin's last season. And, you know, a lot of others that I talk to in the media and other types don't, don't necessarily think so. I mean, the argument on coming back is he's this close to 2,000 wins. Uh, also, in light of the way the regional ended with Drew Parrish, do you really want that to be your last memory? Um you know, do you want your last memory to be in Omaha? I mean, you know, so rarely do you ever get the perfect script at the end, which the perfect script here would be win a national title. So that that's one part of the equation. But the second part to me is if he is coming back, how is Florida State going to handle it? Is it, it, it when he ultimately uh, steps down and retires? Is it going to be a national search or is it going to be a promotion from within? Because if it's going to be a promotion from within, and I don't know if it is, but if it was going to be, there needs to be uh, a transition plan in place to help recruiting. In other words, if Mike Jr. is going to be the next head coach and Mike Martin Sr. is going to coach another one year or two years, whatever it is, I think that needs to be outlined and it needs to be clear to recruits, okay, this is the plan, and after next year or whenever it is, then Mike Martin Jr. will be the coach. Now, you can do a transition plan like that and announce it if Mike Jr. is where you're turning. But again, if you're going to a national search, uh, you really can't announce that because you don't know who the next guy is going to be. I mean, maybe it ends up being Mike Jr. at the end of a national search, but you just don't know. Well, let's, so let's, have, let's, let's work backwards. The worst thing that could happen from a recruiting standpoint, and this is no disrespect to 11 and no disrespect to the, to the staff, but the worst thing that Florida State could do was would be give Mike Martin another one-year contract and not say anything about transition. Agreed? Yeah, I think so. And it's not because of, I mean, Mike Martin is a coach. You, you know you're going to win 40-plus games next year. You know you're going to be in the postseason. You know you're going to have a chance to go to Omaha again. I mean, that, he's done that every year for 39 years. It's the uncertainty that other schools use against you. Exactly. And right and right now, your biggest rival in, in Florida, uh, on top of having that card to play, they're also potentially going to win back-to-back championships. Well, you're, you're going to have a new coach in Miami. you got a UCF program, which is on the rise. You know, Stetson, for gosh sakes, is now in the mix. I mean, it, it's going to be tough to get kids just in Florida without a clear plan. I think I think that's the bottom line on it. Even in baseball, where you're not necessarily signing up for four or five years, you're signing up for three years. I, you know, and to be fair, in, in college baseball, you could come to FSU for a year, and if the coach changes, you could go to JUCO and then get drafted after your your sophomore year, in essence, at the JUCO level. 
So there's a little bit more options there than what there are if you get locked into, say, college football, where you got to be there for three years uh, and you're sort of stuck with the coach for the next two years if it changes. But but I do think the the uncertainty is what creates the question and hinders recruiting a little bit. Um, now, all that said, Florida State had nine guys drafted last year and seven guys drafted this year. And I know that the nine guys in one year was the most they had had drafted, I think, since the early 90s. And I haven't taken the time to add it up, but having 16 guys drafted over two years has to be about the best two-year run in the last couple of decades for FSU, which is to say that on the recruiting, on the surface, they're recruiting you know, decent-caliber players, and it hasn't slipped that much. Well, the naysayers would say that while that's true, the 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 rivals and the opponents might have had a lesser number drafted, but they were drafted in the first round or, or in the third round. And that's always, in college baseball in particular, I mean, you can have a great signing class, but if you sign a bunch of kids at a high school who project as first-round picks and they all turn pro, what happened to that signing you, class? You have you know, no the, signing class. I realize one, one, one of the reasons Florida has excelled of late, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan's done a really good job, obviously, but they've gotten some kids that uh, logic or history would say they're going to sign and turn pro, and they haven't. They've gone to Florida instead, and Florida State hasn't had uh, as many of those type type breaks. So, yeah, I mean, there's th- this is going to be one. People are dug in on this, Keith. There's the, there's the people who want it, – it's sort of like Bobby in this respect. There's the people who think Mike has earned the right to coach as, as long as he wants, given what he's done, and there's the people who are ready for a change, and nothing is going to change the opinion of either side right correct, now. Correct, correct. Um, I, I don't think – you can't look back at his – I'm on the former, by the way, uh, regarding Mike Martin with what he's done. There, there, You can't look back at the 39 years and at any point suggest that there's a time that the administration should have parted ways with Mike Martin. He's been in the postseason every year. He wins 40 games every year. He's been to the World Series plenty of times. Now, he has not been to the World Series as frequently as what rival Florida has of late. They've gone seven to nine years. But even if you go back uh, nine or ten, Florida State's been four times in the last decade. I mean, they went in 10 and 12. Well, they went in 8, 10, 12, and, and last year. So I guess four times out of 11 seasons, which if you added it up and compared it nationally, that's going to be a top five total probably compared to how frequently other schools have gone. We're just never satisfied, are we? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, he hasn't won the title, and that's why, you know, some people want to change and and why there's uh, frustration about it. You know, the perfect example, I thought for a long time, if Mike would have hung it up, say, five or six years ago, I thought Brian O'Connor at Virginia would have been a, 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 I don't want to say logical, but certainly a, a very solid candidate with what he's done. Now, since then, he's won a national title at Virginia, but he's also missed the postseason this year. So, you know, we say we want a national title, but would we trade it for missing the postseason a few years? I, I don't know the answer to that. Everybody would have their own answer on that. But, yes, in the year you won the title, you'd take it. But in the year you're not in the postseason, you don't feel so good. You know, and that's where Virginia is right now. And that's where we're going to have to leave it on this edition of Front Row. Yeah, Girls. yeah, we don't have, we don't have the answers. Uh, we, we clearly don't. And we'll, we'll just see where it goes. But, I mean, uh, he's the winningest coach out there. The way this season ended, Obviously, it was not great, but, uh, you know, if you don't win it all, the, the end is never great. We are uh, feast or famine. Tommy, we appreciate it. You and your family travel safe. We'll see you next week. Listeners, thanks for always, as always, for tuning in. Front Row Knowles. 